the Agile Strategy Lab podcast, where we explore what it means to view your organization, your company, or your community through the lens of agility to create a strategy that works in a rapidly changing world. I'm Liz Nilsson, the Associate Director of the Lab at the University of North Alabama. Today's episode is number 28. When you think of momentum, what do you picture? If you're a physicist or an engineer, you're probably picturing an equation. Momentum equals mass times velocity. If your interests are more around social change or politics, it's the idea that more and more people are on your side. If you're a more visual person, perhaps it's the snowball rolling down the hill, picking up speed and getting bigger as it careens down the slope. In this episode, we look inside the idea of change with a different visual metaphor, the cascade. Like the snowball, a cascade is seemingly moving of its own volition with increasing force. Of course, the cascade itself doesn't have its own decision-making ability. There are physical properties behind what we can see. When we see a change movement, whether it's within a company, an institution, or a region, how can we learn to see what's not in plain sight? And more importantly, can we take advantage of the properties of change to get a movement started in such a way that it will have increasing impact and grow. Today's guest, Greg Sattel, is the author of the book Cascades, How to Create a Movement That Drives Transformational Change. At the lab, we were alerted to Greg's work because of the way in which it aligns with our own, particularly as we think about three groups of people. The enthusiastic pioneers who are the first believers, the persuadable pragmatists that need to be brought on board, and the soreheads, those implacable opponents of change. Greg came to the topic of how change efforts take root and become cascades when he was living in Kiev in the early 2000s, leading a media company, and saw political protests transforming into something bigger. Those observations propelled him into a new phase of his career as he explored what was behind this kind of phenomenon and how to apply those principles within organizations. His book looks behind the scenes at many kinds of change efforts, including implementing digital technologies, adopting agile methodology, or influencing healthcare organizations' ways of working to improve quality. Here's Greg. I was just amazed how thousands upon thousands of people who would ordinarily be doing very different things would all of a sudden stop what they were doing and start doing the same thing all together in nearly perfect unison. And it was like such a raw, powerful force for transformational change. It was like anything I had ever seen before. Uh, and it just sort of shed light on the fact that, hey, the world doesn't doesn't work the way I assumed it it does, right? I mean, we think in terms of power structures, and there's people who have influence, and uh, there's people who have wield institutional power, and they sort of call the shots, and they sort of make things happen, and and sometimes things from below sort of bubble up. And here you just had this massive uprising and 
just it took on a life of its own and nobody with any conventional form of power seemed to have any ability to shape events at all. I, I found uh, that through the research of a guy named Duncan Watts, primarily, uh, that, it, that there are three basic principles of how these things work. That, uh, and, and they were sort of, what was interesting was they were, they were kind of um, discoveries that were, were a bit scattered around. One was, one key discovery was a psychological experiment which uh, was a guy, from a guy named Solomon Ash, and it studied conformity. And what he found was, is that when they, uh, that, that people would conform to the majority view, even if it was obviously wrong. And they, they devised these very, very simple tests where they would bring like eight people into a room and the first seven would all purposely give the same wrong answer and the vast majority of the time that last person who was the only real subject all the rest were of course confederates uh, would would conform to the majority opinion if the people around us adopt an idea or decide to partake in a particular action we are much more likely to do so ourselves. Majorities don't just rule, they also influence. So that's the first principle. The second principle, principle is something we uh, called the threshold model of collective, uh, uh, collective action. And basically all that means is that we all have different thresholds of resistance to partake in an action or to adopt a particular idea. And those thresholds are related to other people around us. So if, if nobody around us believes in a particular idea or partakes in a particular action, we'd have to have very, very low thresholds to, uh, uh, to, of resistance to join in. Um, but if everybody around us uh, was had adopted an idea or was partaking in an action, we'd have to have a very, very high resistance not to join in. Uh, the, the point being, it, if you want to drive change, it really, really matters where you start. So if you, if you start with people who are enthusiastic about the idea, it's going to be much, much easier to gain traction than if you start with people who are very resistant to the idea. Seems like a simple concept, but you'd be amazed how often it's violent. In fact, what I've observed is people seem to want, when they believe in an idea, especially if they believe in it passionately, they seem to want to go and convince the skeptics first rather than, rather than go with, with people. And, and they also try and pick the most controversial aspect of the topic rather than going with something relatively uncontroversial to somebody who's likely to, to, to be enthusiastic about it. So that's the, the second principle, the threshold model of collective behavior. And the third is called the, the strength of weak ties. And all that means is that groups are connected to each other. So if one sort of group or cluster becomes saturated with an idea, or, or, uh, or a particular action that they're involved in. 
uh, they have the power to help other clusters meet their thresholds of resistance. And we can have these sort of cross-cluster infections. And when that happens, it, the, it, it can go undergo a process that physicists call uh, percolation. And that's what can drive a viral cascade or viral activity in the network. When we want to drive transformational change, whenever you see these massive movements or even just uh, people lining up outside an Apple store or this seems like from another age, but uh, a, a you know line forming for the opening weekend for a hit movie, or even a wave at a stadium. Uh, it always starts with small groups loosely connected, united by a shared purpose. So that's all. So as as change leaders, that's what we want to sort of drive forward, empowering these small groups who are already enthusiastic to link together with others who are like-minded. And what we can do as leaders is help empower them and unite them with a sense of shared purpose. So that's why you wanna focus on people who are already excited about the idea because they want it to work. And once you, once you get help them to make it work, that's when you can really start to gain traction. Another interesting thing we found is what you call the sore heads. And this is something uh, that, that we do, uh, a framework that, that we took from, uh, from political revolutions uh, called the spectrum of allies, which is a very similar idea. Um, but what we found is those sore heads or what we would call the active opposition. So these aren't people who are neutral or merely skeptical uh, these are people who are actively trying to undermine you. And I think this is a really important thing because I think all too often we're too nice about change, right? If you want change, the status quo never yields gracefully. You know, power will never fall just because uh, you have a different idea, right? I mean, you need to think of it almost like a, like a warfare, that because any idea for change, if it's an important idea, and if it has the potential to affect people and what they do, uh, there's gonna, always going to be some who hate the idea. And they're going to undermine it in ways that are dishonest and underhanded and deceptive. And that's why you don't want to engage with your fiercest critics. Because not only is it unlikely to be successful and exhausting and frustrating, it's unlikely to be an honest engagement because these people see, for whatever reason, at you as a threat. But we learned two things that are really important. One, the way you move people uh, to, you know, from in, in your methodology, from, you know, from the sort of sore head ish. Uh, to the practical, to, to the pioneer, uh, or what we would say from, you know, passive opposition or, or neutral into passive or active support is through, it's, is through shared values. So one of the things we do in our workshops is get people to shift from, uh, from differentiating values, which makes people 
enthusiastic and passionate about an idea to shared values who help bring people in. In the case of Agile, uh, we want better projects done on time, done faster and cheaper. We want to be a high-performing organization. Uh, with digital technology, we want to increase revenues. We want to serve our, con- our, our, our customer better. Always looking for those shared values uh, rather than the differentiating values that you might be passionate about. And here's the second thing we found. And this is what's fascinating. It's almost like some sort of weird Jedi mind trick. You know how the best way to identify the shared values? Listening to those uh, listening to those sore heads or, or your most active opposition. Um, if you listen to them, remember, you don't want to engage with them. But if you listen to them, not only can they help you identify flaws in your idea, they will help you identify shared values. If you go, if you listen to the people who hate your idea, uh, often you will find you can adopt their language as a shared value, which, and this is a really important distinction to make, you're not using it to convince the sore heads or the active opposition. Most likely they will never agree with you. You're using it with everybody else. You're adopting that, those shared values to, to serve uh, your own purpose. A good shared value should make a sore head's head explode. What, what, do, what do you have against you know, better projects done on time? What, what do you have against higher customer satisfaction? You have to be able to deliver that first, and that's part of empowering your pioneers. But once you do, so another important con- concept that, that we found in social and political revolutions that we find works just as well in an organizational or institutional or corporate environment is this concept of uh, mobilizing uh, constituencies to influence institutions. And, and, and that's the type of mapping that you can find is, is incredibly helpful when you identify those. And, and usually we find when we sit down with, when we do our workshops, that people who are involved in change, they can immediately rattle off two or three institutions that have the power to, to actually uh, you know, implement change. But then there's always at least two more that they weren't thinking of. And often those are high potential institutional groups. Another uh, concept we like to talk about a lot is um, co-optable resources. So what what resources can people take ownership of? What can you offer? Instead of mandating people do this, that, or the other, what can you offer them? So TEDx is a great example of this, right? You have thousands of people spending hundreds and hundreds of hours throughout the world to go and promote the TED brand, not for TED brand's sake, not for TED's sake, but for their own sake. For their own, they want to do a TEDx. So they've, they take these co-optable resources, they make them their own to benefit TED. Here's something that you can take. Here are resources. Sometimes they're workshops or an internal sort of consulting structure that will help you solve your problems for free. If this is something you want to pursue, 
you will get support, you will get tools, you will get this, you will get some sort of co-optable resource that will help you do this on your own. Uh, and that is, uh, in, especially in terms of scaling, when you're jump, trying to jump from those pioneers to the pragmatists, uh, the pioneers are probably so enthusiastic, they're willing to build their own tools themselves or find them. The pragmatists, more often, they want to be handed, okay, show me the thing, give me the tool, put it in front of me, give me the training, and, and I'll use it, right? Um, so you need to have that, th those, uh, you know, sort of ready and, and waiting to go resources that they can co-opt and make their own. It was a very similar uh, strategy with uh, respect to quality healthcare improvement. Uh, where they they had uh, these they sent out change kits to, to hospitals and walk them exactly through what they'd need to do for each one sort of like handbooks for these these quality procedures so uh, and we've seen it in in so many contexts some of them uh, and this is also a great strategy for identifying pioneers they start off with just a workshop they go around they do a workshop. They and and this is a phrase I hear a lot. We will help you. We will help you solve your problems for free. They're not making anybody do anything, but they go and they do their workshops, and then they wait to see who stays after. And that's a fantastic way of identifying your pioneers. And if you can help make those people uh, successful. That becomes, and, and not only that, they want to connect to others who think in a like-minded way. And that's how you get things started. Right. Uh, and that's, a, that's so much more effective than having, let's say, somebody in the C-suite you know, saying, we are now going to be a design thinking company and you must go to X and X uh, seminars and, and, and so on and so forth. That's more you know, after... I would say somewhere between six and 18 months where you're ready to do that, where you're ready to say, hey, we've had some success with this. We want to sort of accelerate that change. You're still not mandating, but you can nudge once you've had had some success and, and see who comes in. And then later on, the mandate comes. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about what we do at the lab, and the tools we use with organizations to bring about transformation, check out our website at agilestrategylab.org. You can email us through the website. Just look for the Contact Us button. See you next time. <music>